Uh, I wanted to start this out making some corrections on some previous broadcasts. I didn't, uh, I don't ever really go back over these. Um, I just listened to one the other day, and uh, I probably won't go back over them. I don't edit them. I just uh, leave them as they are. So, of course, I do make some mistakes, um, and they, they're oftentimes real early in the morning, and uh, I'm not exactly snapping as uh, as accurately as I'd like to be. So uh, I was trying to remember the uh, the gardens um, in D.C. Uh, for um, the uh, the location of uh, I was talking about uh, Voice of America, Radio Free America, and uh, this is a this is a radio program that's put out. Uh, it's a federal broadcast. Um, and it's, uh, it's in language, uh, for a number of different countries that are, uh, unable to receive outside information. And the effort of the broadcasting system is to reach, um, you know, to reach isolated, uh, national, um, audiences of interest. So that, uh, information other than information that they receive from inside their country is available to them. So they have outside information from the West, uh, as the United States is often referred to. Uh, it also covers uh, some aspects of um, Europe, uh, now called the EU. Uh, it's changed its name from a Voice of America to Radio Free um, America, usually it has the name of the country. So Radio Free China, Radio Free uh, Iran, Radio Free whatever. Uh, they've changed it recently to Radio Liberty. Anyway, so it's across the street from, it's right near the Capitol building. It's across the street from the National Botanical Gardens. I could not remember the name of the Botanical Gardens. I kept trying to call them a, uh, a different type of gardening product. So it was a National Botanical Gardens, and they are behind the Capitol building. And right across the street from them is the offices of uh, Radio Free America, Radio Liberty, also called Voice of America. It's very famous. Uh, it's been going on for some time, all the way through, most of the way through the Cold War. And uh, it had some uh, preliminary stuff uh, during World War II. So it's sort of a, uh, you, know, you can go and take a tour there and... Uh, talk to them about um, broadcasting in foreign countries and, and the results of it. There's some pretty interesting uh, results from that. Uh, also, I was talking about Black Hawk Down, and I think I went all the way around the entire of North Africa and the Horn of Africa without mentioning Somalia. So that was, uh, that was Somalia and Mogadishu. And it was also called Tango Down. I think I neglected to mention the actual country, though. So uh, the last correction is, um, I think I used the term shadow observer. Uh, I replaced shadow observer uh, during the PSYOP section with a shadow advisor. So those two different things. Shadow advisor is uh, usually SF that uh, accompanies, um, it's a, it can be a, a task force or it can be a command um, team uh, led c 
command-led team uh, that um, it can be also training initiatives on the ground. Uh, the uh, shadow advisor um, accompanies the standing uh, supervisor, field supervisor, whoever that is, and uh, advises them um, performing sort of a liaison between uh, U.S. initiatives and um, whatever the uh, the team initiatives are. But they can sometimes be international. Sometimes they're only command and they don't involve um, special forces or local initiatives and. Uh, so they perform a valuable function as a as, as a liaison. Uh, PSYOPs has a shadow observer. This is uh, someone who comes in and basically um, observes the function of the unit and any um, local areas of concern that the unit comes into contact with. They may or may not regularly come into contact with it, and the shadow observer sometimes um, pressures the unit to... Uh, make contact with areas that they wouldn't normally come into contact with. So those are two different things, and I think I use Shadow Ad uh, Advisor for Shadow Observer. So that's it. Um, I'm going to move on to a, kind of a different area today. Uh, let's start talking a little bit about uh, space. Um, space... Uh, <laughs> spacecraft, I guess, and, uh, and the various areas relevant to um, exoplanetary uh, exploration and exoplanetary landings and a spacecraft between Earth and um, exoplanet, exoplanetary uh, mission that uh, you might want to use if you were involved in um, writing something or producing something. Uh, I found this, uh, I tried to find something having to do with uh, NASA engineering for spacecraft and uh, rocket craft and all I got was this uh, systems engineering handbook it's a NASA handbook it it uh, from the title you would think it would cover systems engineering for spacecraft that's what it appears to have or or engineering for uh, for things like the rovers and and um, curiosity and all that uh, the the Martian rovers and the the moon rovers uh, and various um, related ISS and satellite stuff, but uh, they don't make that available. So I sort of have to work with this. It is a, um, this basically covers a program and project life cycle for, uh, for engineering in uh, NASA systems. So it's very uh, general and it mostly talks about uh, um, business and uh, project management uh, in 
NASA development, and uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna adapt it to cover some more specific stuff. Um, so I might have to go back over it a little bit. I don't have a lot of information on this. I'm working mostly off of graphs and charts, uh, but I can cover a good chunk of it. So why am I covering this? What does this have to do with what does this have to do with anything? Well, if you know anything about the space program. Uh, most of the astronauts, the original astronauts, and uh, even up to today's astronauts, are drawn from um, a background in the military. Uh, most of them, initially, most of the um, original uh, moon landing and related uh, spacecraft development, manned spacecraft development, uh, the astronauts, <clears throat> the astronauts that were recruited were from the um, f from among fighter pilots and military. So uh, the program retains a, a the NASA program while it's civilian and federal. It maintains sort of a military uh, base to it. Um, all of those pilots that um, that made history as astronauts, they all had uh, this basic training of um, survival training and uh, uh, escape and evasion training. So uh, this is a kind of a basic uh, training set that is shared between uh, the SF and um, most of the special operators in SOCOM. And uh, and the um, the pilots in the Air Force, uh, the special ops that would be the SEALs in uh, in the Navy, and um, and some special Marines units, uh, your long long distance uh, um, recon teams for the Marines. All of those receive, this is uh, kind of all the same basic training set. And uh, and all of those people are sort of uh, some of the pool of people that are drawn on by, um, by NASA when they're selecting astronauts. Of course, they have to apply and they have to meet the criteria. Why did, why did NASA kind of stick with the military on this, uh, pilots in particular? Uh, of course, because they're flying aircraft, um, and the you know the the separation between aircraft and spacecraft uh, diminished rapidly at the uh, breaking of the sound barrier. So this this brought aircraft to the edge of space. Uh, aircraft were flying at the uh, the highest altitude possible before entering space, so they were right at the verge of space. So when uh, when NASA started developing the astronaut program, of course they they pulled in people who had been as close to space as uh, you know one could be um, at that time, which would have been as a as a fighter pilot. So um, also some of the uh, the physical requirements are very very strenuous. Uh, the uh, G requirements at uh, at the mock speeds 
these are for incoming and outgoing rockets, uh, income outgoing rockets and and incoming um, space landing modules um, when they come back in through the uh, the atmosphere. Atmospheric pressure and speed is uh, very physically stressing, and uh, and on the exit out, uh, the the rocket speed, which is you know a massive amount of of um, propellant uh, combined with the pressure of gravity, this uh, this produces very strong physical force that is, uh, you know, it's actually, uh, it actually requires um, good physical stamina and a, and a proven uh, capability to withstand that sort of um, physical pressure while engaged in uh, technical and, and highly uh, focused work, so that would that describes a fighter, a fighter pilot. There, they're in, um, you know, a, a high G environment where they, uh, they are under fairly um, uncomfortable physical stress. Uh, they have a, a jet that's rolling and. Uh, dropping and rising and so on. So they have to have a pretty strong stomach and uh, they have to be pr pretty physically fit. Uh, they have to have pretty good oxygen intake and um, a pretty good head on their shoulders to uh, maintain a sense of calm and, and, uh, and focus even under extreme physical pressure. And that was how they were selected originally, and this is true even today. We have some, uh, we have some less, um, you know, high speed people going to space now, uh, mostly up to the International Space Station. Um, I'm more of a civilian, uh, just recently, um, uh. A couple of people went who were uh, older, um, uh, the, uh, the actor who played Captain Kirk in Star Trek uh, just recently went into space on a, on a, uh, a short jaunt. So uh, he's in his, uh, I think he's in his 80s, either late 70s or early 80s. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, less stressful um, ride maybe now uh, a little bit better um, send off than it was when it originally when the program originally started so this is kind of why um, I'm going over it at uh, if you um, are in the military or out of the military, whether you're in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or Marines, uh, even if you're in the Coast Guard, uh, you might have noticed that your uh, basic um, experiences kind of match up to some science fiction. Uh, you can kind of, uh, you can 
parlay your uh, personal experiences uh, during your time in service into uh, science fiction. You can also use it to develop video games, uh, the video game concepts, and you can also use it to um, write regular literature or or produce regular fiction, nonfiction, and um, and of course any kind of uh, you know movie or um, film production. So you kind of have to uh, have a wide array of um, reference, and uh, that's not always readily available in one place. Uh, there is a special forces, uh, a special ops guy. I think he's, uh, I think he's actually, uh, an ex, uh, I think he's an, an ex seal. I have it in here somewhere, but I'll have to go look it up. Uh, he wrote a handbook, um, that kind of gives, uh, a bunch of details about, uh, military, um, specialty uh, items that you, you know, it's like a, it works as sort of a handbook or a reference. Uh, if you're marching between two points, how long does it take and that kind of thing. So I'll try to get the title of that and uh, put that in a different uh cast broadcast um so i'm going to get started with this i want to start with this uh the system engineer's dilemma so this is the uh, the dilemma at each at each cost effect, effective solution at each cost effective solution uh one to reduce cost at constant risk performance must be reduced. Two, to reduce risk at constant cost, performance must be reduced. Three, to reduce cost at constant performance, higher risk must be accepted. And four, to reduce risk at constant performance, higher costs must be accepted. So you might recognize this from the military. Um, this is the... Uh, this is one of the uh, decision-making modules for uh, uh, your basic lieutenant. Um, how to assess and determine your risk management for your decision-making. Um, and it, uh, it goes all the way down to uh, NCO level. Uh, NCOs use this all the time. They don't, uh, they don't have it in a in a, uh, a structured equation here, but um, I was going to go over this and talk about what each of these means. So in any mission, so we're going to talk military mission here, we'll talk like a special ops mission, uh, the cost of the mission is, uh, there's several levels of it. There's a uh, there's the cost in money, and then there is the cost in hardware and software, and uh, 
the results of the use of hardware and software. And then there's the cost of the um, of the operators. So that's the human element. And then there's the cost of the uh, of the mission results. So that can include um, uh, civilian um, damage cost, material damage cost, or uh, life and limb cost. So that's one of those uh, decision-making references or decision-making um, evaluations that, uh, that any NCO or uh, lieutenant and right on up the chain of command on both uh, enlisted and officer take into consideration when they are making a decision about do they want to commit um, troops and material to a mission? Do they have a mission that uh, is worth the troops and material that are being put into it? So the risk, risk in a, a mission, uh, there's several areas of risk. Um, there's risking the, the mission itself. So is the mission going to be successful? You don't want to undertake a non-successful mission. Obviously, a, a mission that's a failure is uh, this is a, a setback that not only costs the uh, the actual um, you know money and personnel and material in the mission. It also causes a bit of a setback in any. Um, continuity of command or continuity of strategy and tactic on the battlefield. So when you try to exert a, a mission forward um, into a course of action and you have to you have to abort that mission and it turns that um, course of action it you know it it uh, dead ends that course of action. That course of action was intended to uh, work with other, tactics and strategies on the battlefield. So what you do is you you kind of uh you tangle up or 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 knot up and uh and and damage other strategies and tactics that are engaged on the battlefield for, you know, for an effort to maintain a front line or to move a front line forward or to achieve a specific um, goal uh, that was uh, being pursued. So, for example, um, this is for D-Day. So, on D-Day, had there been the necessity, and D-Day was determined, uh, was decided to be on a particular day, and there was bad weather beforehand, uh, and there was some talk about uh, calling it off. So they discussed calling off D-Day due to the bad weather because the, uh, you know, they were taking people in on, uh, on transport uh, by sea. And um, these were mostly land troops. So they had to bring these transports in close to land for the troops to disembark onto, onto the shore close enough 
so that they could get onto shore with full packs and weapons and still, you know, have enough um, strength and capability to storm the beach. So there was some discussion of canceling this. Uh, a lot of the the uh, ground troops were, this was during World War II, so this were, um, you know, Midwest boys that, and uh, uh, farm kids who really did not have a lot of swimming background. Uh, they were not really prepared physically to be out on the ocean. They were not Navy. They were Army and Marines. So there was a lot of talk about um, canceling D-Day. Uh, and they decided, it was decided not to cancel it and to use the storm as a just very heavy storm prior to it as cover for going in to the beaches of Normandy. So this decision was used, this uh, natural um, uh, obstacle in addition to the beaches at Normandy, which were themselves their own obstacle, uh, this natural obstacle of the weather was um, included in the mission planning as part of the mission, that it would provide some cover going in uh, to sort of hide the number of uh, troop transports that were coming in and then somewhat to... Um, catch the, the German uh, corridor there across the front of the beaches uh, by surprise that they would not be expecting anybody to come in under such storm conditions. Um, so had they, had they stopped that uh, invasion, had they aborted that mission, you know, the, uh, the um, the result of that mission may have been very different. We don't know if it would have been more successful or less successful. Uh, there's you know there's some indication that it might have been less successful. So this is one of the things that uh, everybody from a NCO onward ha has to consider when they make a decision about a mission. Is the mission going to be successful and we don't want to call the mission off after we get into the middle of it. This, uh, this hampers all the missions in the area, all other missions, other missions that were reliant on the success of this mission, which is determined to have been, you know, a possibility for success, a good possibility for success. So this is how risk is evaluated and then, the next level of risk is managing that risk. So the risk is that it won't be successful. So you want to manage that risk. You want to make the mission as successful as possible. So in doing that, a lot, a lot of, a lot of command think that uh, making a mission, a lot of the, the, uh, the um, civilian decision-making and command decision-making think that to make the mission successful it needs a lot of a lot of money so that's the cost or a lot of material so that's the cost um but really for a mission to be successful it just it really needs to be 
um, it really needs to be made possible by means of motivating uh, esprit de corps. So this is what is thought about in a military mission. And, uh, and NASA does this too. Uh, they have a mission and uh, their mission in order to be successful it has to consider all of these same sorts of things and it also has to consider um, its its human element and that would be the astronauts or whatever human element there's involved so for the uh, international space station that's uh, that's uh, various uh, research and um, uh, science personnel that uh, do, um, you know, take research projects up and, and make sure that they are completed. So each of the uh, cost and risk balanced against each other um, produce performance. Uh, and it depends on whether you're talking about uh, um, human performance or um, uh, hardware performance. So NASA most often is talking about hardware performance. They worry a lot about hardware performance, and the humans are just kind of along with it. But this isn't really entirely accurate because at some point just like the moon landing, the, the, uh, the equipment um, performance, you know, it eventually is sitting there waiting for the humans who've gotten out of the piece of equipment and are walking around on the surface of the planet or the moon, um, you know, to get back in. So all of those things are have to be taken into account. So the mission planning is, uh, it's very extensive and, um, and the, those persons that are involved in, um, developing, uh, systems, design and planning and engineering, uh, have to take into account each of these um, concerns. So to reduce the cost that at constant risk, uh, the performance has to be reduced. So if you reduce cost, uh, the performance of the hardware, software, and personnel is reduced. So a good example of this is the failure of the O-rings that resulted in the, uh, the explosion of, of uh, the shuttlecraft. This was... Uh, I don't remember the year. I think it was 19, I want to say 87, but it might have been 97. Uh, this was a, a fairly large um, failure. Um, and it was, a, it was an error of engineering. Uh, they were warned about it. Uh, it was brought to the attention of, um, of the, uh, the upper level decision makers uh, several times that the uh, the o-rings which are the uh, the um, the sealant rings that uh, that seal the um, 
boltings between the sections uh, of the um, of the uh, the ship uh, at ice water level. So if they were dropped in ice water, they um, they hardened. They didn't exactly freeze. They 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 hardened and cracked uh, or became unusable. So once the once the spacecraft leaves Earth, it moves into into the or into outer orbit and then into space. So there's no heat there. So the cold that would be on these rings, you know, obviously would be um the cold of deep space. So it's uh this was brought up as being a problem and um it was ignored by uh the hierarchy at NASA and the result was the death of uh everybody on the uh the spacecraft. I think it was nine people. So uh, including one, this was the one with the civilian teacher. It was the first civilian uh, that was uh, sent up. Um, and she was a school teacher. And uh, that was the, that was the, uh, uh, the analysis. Uh, they use the term lessons learned. Of course, uh, the military uses that also. Um, evaluating these O-rings was part of uh, the, uh, the, life cycle, the engineering life cycle. And, um, it, uh, they passed that, uh, validation test, uh, basically on paper, uh, even though it was brought up by a number of engineers, um, on the project that, uh, that there was a problem with the, uh, the temperature capability of those O-rings. So this is something uh, that to keep in mind. So the cost w to replace those O-rings after they'd already been committed to the project was extensive and they didn't want to undertake the cost or the effort. The effort would mean, you know, taking everything apart, redesigning the O-rings and re, you know, reapplying it. So they did not do that and uh the performance was uh the ship exploded. Um, it began to come apart as it uh, was transitioning out of Cape Canaveral and uh, the rocket fuel underneath it just uh, lit it on fire. So the second one of these is to reduce risk at constant cost, performance must be reduced. So instead of reducing cost of the, t of the equation, cost and risk, in this one they're reducing the risk at constant cost. So the, the risk is reduced, um, but the cost remains the same. Then the performance must be, re be reduced. So the risk is how much you put out, um, how much effort is put out to successfully achieve the mission. So the, uh, um, the greater the risk and the more the and if the mission is successful the more that is accomplished by the completion of the mission so you can think of it as an arrow going out 
if it goes out five feet, then it its successful completion encompasses five feet. But if it goes out 10 feet, its successful completion encompasses 10 feet. If it goes out 15 feet and it's successful, then its successful mission completion encompasses 15 feet. If you send it out 15 feet and it only makes it 10 feet and you have to you have to uh, end the mission or abort the mission, you still have achieved some of your uh, risk. So your your risk was 15 feet, and you've 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 achieved some of 10 feet of it. Not all 10 feet, some of that 10 feet, because all of the 10 feet was reliant on you reaching 15 feet. That would encompass all of the 10 feet. But by making it to 10 feet, you have accomplished some of the 5 feet within the 10 feet and then additional, a few additional feet in between. So probably 5 to 7 feet. Where this, uh, this concept comes in to um, I, the reference for it would be like the front line, the front trenches, front line trenches in uh, World War I and also World War II. Uh, but World War One specifically, uh, they talked about um, you know moving those those front line. The front lines would move uh, you know a few feet, uh, a mile in a, a couple days, and then they would sit for a month or two, and then they would move a mile for a couple you know across a couple days, and then they would sit for a month or two. So very very short movement forward. Um, at great uh, at great risk to personnel in those in those trenches and uh, and of course the cost at the, was mostly life and ammunition so that's a good example of uh, you know very short um, high risk, short distance, high cost. And uh, the result of um, reduced risk at constant cost is that the performance has to be reduced. So you don't get as far and you don't achieve as much. And the achievements expected within that mission do not... Um, do not uh, assist to to bolster other mission imperatives. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, I kind of gave this before. This is a famous example. Uh, the uh, the famous um, well Iwo Jima is a a good example of it. Um, this is a a reduced risk at a constant cost. So the actual the uh, the actual the what what they wanted to do was they wanted to take more than that hill. They wanted to move across the area that that hill was in. 
So the hill beyond that hill was what where they wanted the front line to be. And uh, the, uh, the hill was under occupation. So they... Um, They sought to take the Marines sought to take that hill uh, at a fairly high cost, and the, so the the cost was constant with a, a you know a much more expanded mission. the The risk uh, was also fairly high, and, and the performance um, was uh, a number of dead. So the performance is, of course, if the, if the cost is high and, uh, and the, the risk assessment is high with a um, risk assessment of, a, of, of successful achievement low, then the performance is, uh, is reduced and you have, you have more, um, casualties and deaths. So the third item is to reduce cost at constant performance. Higher risk must be accepted. So this is uh, this also same same example. So if you reduce your cost, um, you reduce the loss of life at constant performance. Um, so pursuing the mission uh anyway then the higher risk is uh results so this uh to do to reduce risk at constant cost performance must be reduced and to reduce cost at constant performance higher risks must be accepted this is sort of a, an inversion of each other and uh and is part of determining um, a successful and um, we'll say inspiring mission. Uh, usually this is a type of mission that uh, it, when it's successful, even sometimes when it's not successful, is, uh, is so unbelievable. Um, you know, the higher risk is very, is very high and the performance is so much reduced that the successful achievement of it is just unbelievable. So Normandy Beach was one of these. Uh, Iwo Jima was one of these. And, uh, and that's an inverse uh, relationship, those two in the middle there, to reduce risk at constant cost. Performance must be reduced. And to reduce cost at constant performance, higher risk must be accepted. And then finally, to reduce risk at constant performance, higher cost must be accepted. So this is something that almost never happens in missions uh, to reduce the risk um, for safety reasons uh, at the constant performance expectation. Higher cost goes into it. This happens a lot at the federal level. So there's, a, uh, there's some kind of a project that's going on. Uh, there's cost going into it. Um, it's been evaluated to be thus and such cost. Usually the company has... Um, has made a bid to, to get that contract, and uh, this happens with NASA frequently. Uh, Boeing has bid to take a contract. They have estimated that they can complete the contract at thus such number. 
um, then as the as a project proceeds, um, this this equation goes into effect. So to reduce risk at constant performance, uh, higher cost has to be accepted. So the risk is going up. So to reduce that and to maintain the performance level at uh, at safety standards the higher cost goes into effect so then they then they begin to have to the project slows um and the budgetary constraint expands uh it was a, it was estimated by the company that they could complete it in x number of dollars now it expands another x number x plus n number of dollars and then x plus n two n dollars and then sometimes it goes into the n squared so um this is one of the things that uh, if you throw money at it uh the project gets completed uh, in in a better risk frame and a better performance frame this is not always true uh, sometimes it just gets completed in the same performance frame uh, with safety, some safety standards in place that would not have been there. So this kind of to shorten the entire uh, dilemma, uh, cutting costs and cutting corners um, equates to higher risk and lower performance. Everybody knows this, but the inverse of that, so um, flooding cost, you know, flooding the, uh, the cost um, determination and flooding the performance uh, evaluation um i'm sorry uh, flooding the cost um determinant and flooding the risk determinant reduces the performance so too much money also results in reduced performance because the project becomes unwieldy and uh and bloated um and it loses its uh, it loses its focus and edge, and uh, safety far outweighs the performance of the the mission um, result, and uh, the project never gets off the ground. So there's kind of a balance that has to be maintained between these these uh, these variables: cost, risk, and performance. And then the reduction of those or the um, the expansion of those that result in in uh, higher risk or higher cost. Um, so starting out with uh, there's a description of the different types of missions, um, and this is from an actual uh, program project lifecycle. Uh, so the first type of uh, mission is a human space flight or very large science robotic mission. 
So human spaceflight mission, this is a, this is a very um, high-risk, necessary high-performance and high-cost mission. Uh, the cost of the mission, of course, is uh, everybody's life. That's the final cost of the mission. It doesn't do you any good to send a, a ship out, a spaceship out of some kind, rocket ship or space shuttle or spaceship of any kind, with humans on board if they get part of the way there and uh, the humans perish, or they get all of the way there and the humans perish, because the humans are, are part of the mission completion. So you have the completion of the hardware and software that gets them there, and then you have the additional advanced mission beyond the hardware and software mission of the human mission, which is very fragile. Uh, you know, humans, they don't withstand heat very well. They don't withstand cold very well. They have to eat. They have to go to the bathroom. You know, they've got all kinds of uh, special requirements for staying alive. So including all of that in your mission um, standards and and uh, risk assessment is, uh, is what makes it a very high risk and... Uh, and um, and high-cost mission in need of high performance. Uh, also, in the uh, the high risk category would be uh, robotic, large science, or robotic missions. Um, the uh, the Martian the efforts to uh, explore Mars using large, um, you know, Curiosity rover and uh, the other rover sets. Uh, this is a very large robotic mission. Um, the The robot itself it has to be landed on the surface, and it it uh, it really can't land itself. So all the hardware and software has to get the robot there. And the robot is basically just a piece of equipment that they have to get there. Then once it arrives there, then the robot itself has to, has to take the mission to the, the next, the, the advanced step. And uh, if you watch the, uh, or pay attention to the Curiosity rover landing, this is a good example of this. And really, of all of the rover landings, um, they are, you know, everybody is on tenterhooks waiting to find out if, uh, you know, if, if the robot's going to come up, if it's going to work. Is it actually going to uh, go online and start functioning? It's very cold. It's uh, nobody's been to Mars. Everything that they have um, done to build this uh, robotic explorer is based, you know, on very uh, remote evaluation, analysis, and assessment of what they might find on the Martian surface. There have been some uh, some photos of it, but not very much up close. 
these are the first on surface um, uh, mission uh, participants, the uh, the rovers, the robotic um, explorers, and whether or not they're actually going to start up correctly and then function correctly even just initially is uh everybody's practically about ready to pass out from fear that they got the martian rover there and it's not gonna work it's not gonna start up it's too cold it's too windy it's too acidic uh you know there's uh there's not the right conditions for it to start up something was left out something went wrong and um and the you know the mission basically has failed they got the rover there the mission did a great job to that point but the final effort of the mission which is the uh the robotic um explorer moving around on the surface of mars and sending back specific information that can be used for when nasa sends its its human um contingent then if it if that doesn't work out the mission is a failure so uh the uh the agency uh takes into consideration the uh the priority of um uh an acceptable risk level for that mission so they rely on criticality to the agency's strategic plan. Um, so the the plan is to eventually put uh, humans on Mars, and uh, so the priority is to uh, develop some kind of a mission that uh, precedes that, that helps develop the uh, the human mission, and. Uh, you know, it's kind of a gigantic undertaking. Uh, there's the long distance between Earth and Mars. Uh, it's long enough that it really it exceeds a human lifespan. So uh, a human adult would have to, they would have to figure out some way to get a human adult there, either with the, with the expectation that they would be elderly or with some other kind of a, um, an arrangement. So it's, uh, you know, the, all of this stuff, the planning takes... Uh, it considers, you know, the first five years, the first 10 years, the first 15 years, the first 20 years. And it's looking at missions, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten missions ahead to uh, to um, a human settlement on Mars. So I am just about out of time. i got about five minutes. Um I'm going to go ahead and run through this on another on another episode. Um, the priority and acceptable risk level, of course, it's very high priority, and uh, they want to keep a very low or minimized risk. Um, this is not really very possible. If the priority uh, for um, the mission is uh it's critical to the agents to the agency's strategic plan it's obviously it's going to be high priority and it's going to be high risk so 
Mars would be one of those. Uh, national sig significance, um, this should be very high for human space flight or for a large science or robotic mission. So that's high priority, uh, medium to high risk, and a very high national significance. Um, you know, this, uh, this accomplishes uh, a very important space, uh, step in the space program. Um, humans set foot on Mars here in the United States. We see it as humans, Americans and humans set foot on, on the moon. I'm sorry, on the moon. And now the next step is uh, the nearest accessible planet that humans could set foot on, and that would be Mars. So this is a high national significance uh, that uh, contributes to national pride, uh, that that uh, helps um, develop uh, the national economy, um, that helps bolster uh, um, national media and uh, social media focus um, that is part of, uh, you know, political campaigns and uh, the development of um, legislation in the uh, infrastructure of the country that contributes to, uh, you know, this uh, priority um, strategic plan for uh spacefaring of one kind or another, either to, to the moon, to Mars, wherever. So it's got a high national significance that, uh, that contributes to, um, to the development of jobs and the economy and employment and uh, national interest, esprit de corps amongst the military and amongst agency personnel. Uh, it gives the news something to focus on. Uh, it helps um, develop national pride and so on. So I'm just about out of time. I just got a, a couple minutes here. Um, I'm just going to go through each of these and talk about uh, systems engineering, different kinds of systems. There's human systems. Uh, there are um, uh, internet systems, there are uh, software systems, and um, then engineering systems, uh, that would be, you know, uh, mechanical stuff. Um, some of this is not my, really my forte, but uh, I'm going to go over what I have of it. And um, if you're not interested in space and science, uh, you can skip this section. And I'm going to use this as a lead-in for, uh, for the DARPA, which is uh, very interesting. Tons of stuff in the, uh, in the uh, several dimensions area. And uh, I've got about 35 seconds, so I'm going to conclude this episode and pick up on another one. So continuing on with uh, space exploration exoplanetary exploration, uh, how to um, 
fit your military experience into uh, space exploration, or if you're just interested in space exploration and uh, science fiction, how to how to develop that. Um, I left off on the other uh, on the other broadcast of talking about systems. So uh, there's a bunch of different systems. There's different types of systems. Uh, we started using the term system to mean a bunch of different things. Uh, the original uh, definition was a, uh, a set of things uh, working together as part of a mechanism or as a, uh, as a function. So like a railroad system would be a system. Uh, then we started developing computer uh, hardware and then software, and uh, we came up with a whole different uh, definition. So it uh, also applies to a set of principles and procedures uh, according to which something is done in a, an organized framework or in an organized method. Uh, so like a school system. Or a linked network. Another definition is a linked network or a networked uh, structured um, function. So that would be like SysDev, uh, systems development. Um, so these are these are three definitions of systems. Uh, one is a solid state system. That's a railroad system. Uh, one is an abstract system, that's a uh, set of principles or methods like a school system. Uh, and uh, the third one is a combination of the two, uh, a linked network or a ne networked um, structured uh, construction of hardware and software. Uh, that combines um, uh, the hard definition and the soft def definition into uh, uh, computer systems. So uh, I was using an engineering system manual from NASA to uh, to go through this. Um, I don't really have a uh, I don't have anything else really to work with. So this is a little bit, uh, I hope I'm not hemming and hawing and um, umming as much as I sound like I am. Uh, I went through uh, descriptions of the types of mission, a human space flight uh, or a very large science robotic mission. That'd be like the, uh, the Mars lander, uh, right? The moon landing mission or the Mars lander and the, uh, um, the Mars exploring uh, robotic explorer missions. Um, and then the priority that relies on criticality to uh, agents to the agency's strategic plan. So the agency's NASA, and uh, their strategic plan is to put humans on Mars, uh, and the ex the acceptable risk level of that priority mission. So it's a very high priority mission, and uh, they want a very low risk level or a minimized risk level. Uh, in fact, the risk level is quite high, so they want to minimize that by putting together or designing a mission and uh, the parts and pieces of the mission in such a way as to reduce and minimize risk. And then national significance. Uh, the national significance is very high. Uh, the national significance is um, uh, 
the mission um, and national pride in that mission, uh, jobs and employment around that mission, um, budgets and budgetary planning at the uh, um, budget office there in D.C. Uh, regarding the mission, uh, the development of uh, political strategy and political campaigns uh, in support of or um, uh, against the mission, um, the uh, school development um, around producing students who graduate with a capability of attending to such a mission. So can they, uh, you know, are, are, do they have the science background and the math background and, uh, and the um, reading, writing, and arithmetic background to uh, be able to meet that mission uh, some 15, 20, 25 years down the line? Uh, and then the economy, um, how that mission um, produces... Uh, economic growth and economic development. So uh, things have to be invented. Things have to be, um, uh, you know, improved upon or developed in such a way as to uh, produce a better result from the last time that they were used. Uh, things have to be built or um, they have to be designed or they have to be imagined. Um, and all of those things go into... Uh, producing um, an economy, a working economy. So this is a part of a high-tech economy, um, and uh, it requires high-tech personnel. And some of those personnel are still in grade school, and uh, some of them are in high school or in university, and then some of them, of course, are working at NASA. So national significance is very high. Uh, it supports a lot of different things. A lot of different things are reliant upon the success of the mission and uh, the failure of the mission uh, results in, um, you know, a lot of, uh, setback of, uh, of national, um, sense of, uh, worth and investment and commitment. So national significance uh, is very high for a human space flight or a very large science or robotic mission effort. Um, so the, uh, the manual that I'm working off of is the NASA Systems Engineering Handbook, and uh, it's mainly, uh, it just handles, uh, the, the handbook mostly uh, deals with um, project management and project development. So this is a, uh, I wanted to talk about the different kinds of systems. I kind of expected this to be uh, more along uh, engineering systems and uh, rocket systems, but uh, it's not. So I thought I'd go over some of the different kinds of systems that uh, you might expect to find uh, for, a, for a NASA mission. Uh, so that would be uh, propulsion systems is one type, uh, the command and control system. Uh, so that would be the, uh, the cockpit systems in the, uh, in the, um, the, the, the human section or the command and control section of the rocket or a spaceship or space shuttle, whatever it is it uh, is being sent out. I'm kind of uh, covering some things that have gone before this, some things that are being developed now, and of course, some things that might develop in the future. Um, so NavComp systems, this is a navigation computer systems. This is a type of system. 
Uh, this is, uh, of course, is a linked network and network structural system for SysDev. Uh, the, um, the command and control system, this would be a set of principles or procedures um, according to which something is done in an organized framework uh, or method, and also a linked network or networked structure of, uh, of hardware software. And then um, the, uh, the propulsion system, this is a straight hard system, uh, hard science system, uh, like a rail system. It's a um, set of things working together uh, as part of a mechanism or a function. Um, so then additional systems, you would have uh, your interface systems, like this is uh, how the NavComp system would talk to the various parts of uh, the rest of the ship systems. Um, you see this in Star Trek somewhat. Uh, this is uh, obviously fiction, but uh, you have it uh, in the space shuttle, which we're, we don't use the space shuttle now, but uh, only until just recently. And uh, in any of the rocket ship uh, parts now, any section that has humans in it, there's a NavComp system that uh, that interacts or interfaces with the other systems so that the uh, the astronauts can evaluate, assess, and control various other systems in various other parts of uh, the International Space Station or uh, the rocket ship that they're on. Uh, then there's the onboard life support system. Um, this is, uh, you know, when the astronauts are on board, they've, uh, they're in orbit uh, or they're on their way and they're cleared to take off their spacesuit and they have their helmets off. You know, the air system, the oxygen system, the other support, life support systems that uh, they're going to be reliant upon during the time that they're going to be in that, um, in that uh, ship, whatever type of ship it is. And then you have your space system. This is the uh, individual life support system. It's, uh, it has to uh, evacuate waste. It has to have clean drinking water. It has to have a cooling system in it to keep the uh, astronaut cool when things, when he's starting to work and his suit heats up. It's got to have a warming system in it, a heating system to keep him warm if he uh, is doing a spacewalk or she, if they're going to do a spacewalk, are they going to be uh, warm enough uh, given the temperatures of space, which are, you know, beyond uh, most uh, comprehension of cold that we have here on Earth. Um, uh, they have to have an, a system of... Um, evaluating uh, various other things that they're doing, uh, you know, lifting and moving things and uh, various other activities and undertakings that they're going to be doing uh, in support of their personal mission on, for example, the space station or uh, on the moon, wherever they're at. Then you have the, uh, the emergency backup systems. This is actually a subsystem. Uh, these are uh, emergency systems for failures and backup systems for redundancy. So if one set of systems fails, another emergency backup system comes on. Uh, a good example of this is um, the, uh, the Mars lander and, uh, and the, um, the Mars uh, robot explorer, uh, Curiosity. Um, it uh, it has had there's been a couple failures for the uh, the Mars explorers 
the, the big robotic, rolling robotic explorers, uh, in which they um, some systems, a, a front system failed, and uh, everybody at NASA waited breathlessly to see if the backup system would come on. Sometimes there is uh, two backup systems or even three, depending on how worried uh, the engineers are of uh, the failure of the front system, how, how stressed the, the, um, the function system, the, dish, the face function system is, and how reliant uh, they might be on a backup system. Uh, they've done some really astounding uh, mission saves um, with some of those uh, Martian rovers. The the uh, the Martian robotic explorers are, you know, they're completely uh, remote system. So um, they're they're on Mars, and of course their handlers are um, at, at Cape Canaveral or one of the uh, the control centers. So everything that's done ha is done at a distance of, uh, you know, million miles. So they, the um, successful uh, inner workings or um, cross-referencing of backup systems so that sometimes they can use the backup system of another section of the uh, ro robotic explorer to um, prompt or fill in for a failed system that they didn't, uh, the backup system didn't come on and they weren't able to, to get it to um, pick up where the uh, failed front system left off. And uh, they were able to transition a, a backup system, a secondary backup system from another, another segment into uh, fill in. So they've really done some amazing stuff. Uh, they don't get a lot of credit for it. It's not they announce it, but it doesn't really get out to the public that much. If you uh, read up on their website a lot, you can see some of their uh, some of the great saves they've done. Um, so emergency backup systems very very important. If there's any kind of a failure, uh, the emergency backup system is like uh, the emergency chute parachute. You know your your chute comes out, it's all tangled up. Do you have an emergency backup chute? And was it packed right? So this is a uh, this is something that's um, uh, you know very important part of all of the main systems. <clears throat> then we have uh, system architecture. This is how <clears throat> one system is built to uh, function um, as efficiently as possible, and still at the same time be able to. Uh, step in and um, cross-function for some other systems. So system architecture is important, and then we have a lot of other subsystems like uh, waste disposal systems and uh, the air and water recycling systems, uh, the heating and cooling systems, and so on. So all of these are important, and, um, and then there's additional systems built to handle uh, various experiments and... and uh, um, efforts that are being undertaken to uh, do uh, experiments like at this uh, International Space Station. Um, so understanding what uh, systems do and how, how important they are is a big part of uh, mission planning. Uh, engineers do this and uh, um, project planners do this and um, program 
planning and program uh, development. They all have uh, some familiarity with this. Uh, so the complexity, obviously, is very high. Um, the, uh, the complexity of putting together a number of, and I just listed a group of systems here, and it's not even all of them. It's, it's uh, you know, about two-thirds of them. So I have, uh, I have nine, nine to 12 systems here, including three subsystems. So that's just uh, that's just the big uh, front function system. It doesn't include all the smaller stuff. So it's it's fairly complex. It's very high or high complexity. Uh, the mission lifetime. This is uh, how long it's going to last. Is it going to be three months? Is it going to be one year? Is it going to be five years? Um, it depends on what is being discussed. A lot of the uh, a lot of the missions to the space station are about three months, sometimes six months. Uh, we just recently here had uh, uh, one of the astronauts who's a, got a twin who's also an astronaut. Uh, he did the first year-long stay at the uh, the space station, ISS. Um, the Russians had also done some long-term um, stays there to find out what the uh, physiological and uh, physiognomical uh, results would be on a human body in space uh, with the, uh, there's uh, heavy radiation and uh, long periods of uh, weightlessness. So uh, human bones and muscle structure require uh, gravity and, um, and, and impact, bone impact uh, uh, on solid surface to maintain their um, their development, their their uh, their capability to support the human body, the human frame, and uh, of course, when you're in a weightless environment, uh, you do have a little bit of contact, like uh, when you're pushing off from stuff, but it's very light contact. It doesn't provide the um, the uh, impact muscle and bone impact uh, to the surface and the uh, constant sort of weight lifting or weight carrying of gravity that, uh, that helps provide uh, the functional uh, muscle, bone, tendon, sinew um, structure and support for the human body. So uh, longer than five years uh, mission um, in a weightless environment, this is a pretty big undertaking. So the Mars mission would include that. Uh, the moon mission uh, was not that long. Um, it was, uh, I think it was a three-month mission also. I don't remember the exact time. It was a few months. And uh, they did have a recovery time when they came back. So there's different kinds of missions uh, to, the, to the space station. This is a very short mission, three months, maybe a year. Uh, to the moon, this was a, a fairly short mission, uh, three to five months, and then uh, to include the return. So this this includes uh, returning back into the atmosphere and uh, and being picked up um, at the at the drop site um, or landing site. And then now they're talking about uh, they're talking about a, a, a mission. Uh, this is the most recent one. This Coming up this week, uh, mission to the moon, 
um, preparatory for um, a moon colony uh, in order to facilitate a way station uh, on um, Mars settlement mission. So that's a longer than five years. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a mission that uh, looks out over probably 10, 15, 20 years of time. So then the cost guidance, uh, this is still for human space flight or a very large science or robotic mission. It's, this is the cost guidance is quite high. Um, and, uh, that is, um, you know, this is something that, uh, we don't often think about here in the United States. We, we have a budget for NASA and they, they function under that budget. Um, they request an expanded budget if they have a, a larger mission. So they've just undertaken here recently a, a larger mission and, uh, they requested, um, budgetary expansion. Um, you know, if you're in a smaller, if you're looking at a smaller country like uh, the European Space Agency, this is uh, the EU, uh, or um, any one of the independent space agencies, the national space agencies, space agencies. Um, China's got one, Japan's got one, Turkey's working on one, uh, and the, there's a French one and uh, an English one. So all of these have, uh, they've started to develop a space program. But uh, we're talking about very small countries and, uh, you know, what kind of budgetary uh, support can they put into their, um, their space program? Do they have uh, the full-scale budget that, uh, you know, uh, a large-scale um, uh, human spaceflight or some similar mission can they support that in their in their national budget? Um, so that's uh, that's part of determining whether or not a mission is going to be successful. And uh, of course, you know, you're thinking about that whether you're in that country or in an outside country. Uh, if if Japan is successful in their mission to obtain um, surface uh, samples from an asteroid. Uh, you know, that's something that we can share notes with the Japanese. We uh, work with the Japanese in both science and, and uh, um, agencies. And, you know, we can share those notes. And this is this can save uh, NASA research and effort to have to send their own um, space probe to an asteroid and and handle all the problems with uh, collecting a surface sample off of a passing asteroid or a nearby asteroid. Um, so this, you know, the success of Japan's mission is important to the developing success of a NASA mission, even though it's a much, much smaller mission. This is a, this is a very small automated uh, uh, robotic mission uh, being handled uh, from, you know, with a remote, um, control center, uh, the Japanese mission is, and, uh, you know, the NASA mission is a very large mission headed to Mars, but these two missions complement each other and, and each one is, uh, kind of contributing, um, data and, and, um, research and development, uh, 
methods and um, findings to the others uh, program development and, and uh, mission development. So that helps cut NASA costs is to, uh, you know, to um, look at and, and uh, pay attention to the missions of other space agencies, whether they be tiny agencies or medium agencies or large agencies. And, uh, and that helps save money. Um, so the launch constraints, uh, launch constraints are critical. Uh, there's all kinds of launch constraints to take into, um, consideration. Uh, there's the cost, of course, a launch cost is, is astronomical, not to use a pun. Um, they really are very, very expensive. The fuel is expensive. Uh, you know, the use of the facilities is expensive. The, the, construction of the craft is expensive and and then the uh, reconstruction of it on the launch site and then um, uh, you know the personnel and so on all of that's very high cost uh, there's also uh, the constraint of um, the uh, exit capability um, there's a um, a launch window that is available with the um, uh, our atmospheric conditions and things like our um, our uh, electromagnetic uh, um, field and so on. All of this ha contributes to, uh, along with weather and other um, uh, concerns of lining up the most um, economical and uh, um, efficient uh, path of travel uh, from the launch site to the landing site. So, if we're talking about the moon or to Mars, uh, those there's a there's a specific launch window that maximizes. Uh, usually, they have one or two or three of them that uh, maximize those. Uh, those constraints of um, time, whether the electromagnetic field, uh, uh, whether or not there's going to be um, uh, a sunburst that's, uh, you know, causing electromagnetic problems, uh, satellite um, locations, and then, uh, you know, the most efficient path of travel from the launch site to the landing site or to the to the uh, entry into orbit site. Um, there's also the uh, the constraint of um, you know preparation, uh, how long it's taking to get uh, everything uh, constructed and uh, put together. Um, there's additional constraints. Uh, there's sometimes surprises like, national emergencies, COVID would be one, uh, you know, national um, constraints like budgetary constraints or uh, the, the, the depression when uh, the depression happened. This, of course, this caused a national budgetary constraint. We didn't have NASA running at that time, but uh, there was a, uh, a similar um, financial uh, sagging 
during uh, the Obama administration uh, that uh, kind of uh, made it difficult for the space agency, for NASA to um, to really, you know, fulfill all of its its mission uh, wish list. So all of these are launch constraints. Uh, they prevent a launch that might have been planned from happening, or they make the launch difficult to um, to manage and to to uh, complete on time, uh, or they constrain um, the, uh, the 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 possibility even of the launch taking place is there a window that's going to allow that uh that necessary high efficiency uh flight path and um and earth orbit exit and um exoplanet or or uh, um exosatellite um orbital entry that uh, is going to work so all of those are constraints. They're critical, and of course, they're critical for human spaceflight or the the large robotic missions. These are all, of course, these are um, you know high uh, high priority and high strategic uh, value and high criticality uh, missions. Um, the alternative research opportunities or the reflight opportunities. So this is. Uh, um, they have on they have on this uh, this table a uh, no alternative or reflight opportunities. But the whole the whole idea of the space shuttle was the idea of uh, a repeated space flights on the same uh, the same shuttlecraft. So this was uh, a cost saving measure that uh, that also was important um, for uh, you know. Uh, a long-term um, mission priority um, um, mission success. I mean, if the first one was successful, and it was, then of course all the others, all the other missions would also be successful because the the space shuttle has uh, it's worked once and it's returned, and uh, and it's. Uh, it has to have its tiles replaced, and then, and then it goes up again. So it's uh, it's reusable, and it uh, it worked and was successful the first time. So one successful mission means that that uh, you know there's at least two or three or four, five successful missions before before that uh, that um, spacecraft becomes. Uh, uh, you know, begins to age to the point where it needs to be replaced. At which point, um, you know, the the uh, the reflight opportunities diminish, and then finally, it's got to be it's got to be scrapped, and a and a new one has to be built at uh, at high cost. So, uh, the alternative research opportunities or reflight opportunities are are important, and uh, engineers try to develop this. Uh, they try to develop reusable rockets. They try to use uh, re reusable uh, reentry modules. Uh, this is what the astronauts come in on. Uh, they try to use, um, you know, uh, parts and pieces that, uh, for example, uh, the Mars rovers. Uh, it's expected that if uh, that if uh, there's a human settlement there, that they would be able to 
um, you know, either refurbish those and get them working again and use them there additionally, or that they would be able to uh, use parts of it uh, to develop things that they brought in with them. So, um, you know, recycling um, usable parts and and uh, developing uh, reflight opportunities for um, the established <clears throat> spacecraft. This is important, and uh, it saves money. It saves time. It makes the mission successful because if it was successful before, there of course this means that uh, the the possibility of the success of a second or third or fourth mission is uh, much higher, and um, so it's a uh, it's a positive thing. Um, the achievement of a, a mission success criteria. So the practical measures uh, that are taken to achieve the minimum risk to the mission success and the, the highest assurance that the standards are used. So I, I already talked about this in the, uh, in the previous, uh, in the previous um, episode. Uh, this is uh, the part of the engineer's dilemma uh, to reduce cost at uh, constant risk. Uh, performance must be, Reduced uh, to reduce risk at constant cost. Performance must be reduced to reduce cost at constant performance. Higher risk must be accepted, and to reduce risk at constant performance, uh, higher costs must be accepted. So, I said this is uh, this is kind of a little bit of an equation here, or a um, a uh, a function. Uh, and it uh, it's relevant to this achievement of mission success criteria. So all practical measures are taken to uh, achieve minimum risk to mission success. So then you have to determine what mission success is. And uh, the a uh, lot of the mission success now, like the Moon mission and the Mars mission, uh, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a um, a three-part success. You've got the success of launching the spacecraft at Canaveral and getting it into orbit and then out of orbit to its destination. And then once it gets to its destination, so the moon or Mars, uh, successfully launching the suborbital or landing units. Uh, so for the moon, this would be uh, launching the moon landing um, module, and then uh, you know that landed by means of a rocket, um, and and then uh, that's the second part. That's the second stage of success. So that's got to be successful. The uh, the moon module has to actually touch down on the moon for the uh, for the human uh, crew, the astronaut crew, to be able to pursue their mission. Now, they're the third part of the mission, and that's for this, that's the third mission that has to be the third section of the mission that has to be successful. So everything that they take out with them, uh, you know, the, the Mars, uh, uh, I mean, the moon rover, that was the, uh, the car that they drove on the moon, uh, you know, the various... Um, experiments that they did in the rock collection and so on 
uh, the various um, uh, um, devices that they uh, used for measurements and and uh, to take um, samples and so on. All of that has to work for the mission to be successful. Then they get back into the moon module and it uh, it uh, blasts off the moon and uh, returns them to orbit and then from orbit back to Earth and then they have to enter the Earth's orbit and land uh, that um, module, the astronauts' uh, landing module, back on Earth. Uh, they did a splashdown. So this is a very complicated, multi-part mission. Each section has to successfully be completed for the next section to successfully be completed. And they have a movie about this where uh, a couple different movies, in fact, uh, the most re recent one was Mars, where there was a there was a failure uh, of part of the mission, and um, so then of course, just like with any mission, you have to double back and uh, and try to recover what you can. So in this case, uh, in the movie Mars, uh, the one of the astronauts was uh, thought to be dead. Uh, they were under a uh, time delay to get off of the surface of Mars. This was like a preliminary um, uh, pre-settlement uh, prior to bringing in a full-scale settlement effort. So they, uh, they left Mars, the bulk of the, uh, the astronauts that had arrived left Mars, and they left one astronaut on Mars who, it turned out he wasn't dead, he was uh, not able to contact them. So he's alone on the surface of Mars for about a year, I think, or a year and a half. And uh, he's, uh, he's at these, um, these preliminary um, biospheres that they'd set up, uh, f you know, to stay in while they were there for just a couple months for their initial Mars landing. So the movie is about uh, the original... Um, astronaut contingent, you know, doubling back and picking him up, you know, recovering, recovering their live astronaut off the surface and, uh, and bringing him back. So that's the example of, uh, of taking a failed mission, um, and turning it into a successful mission. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, you can give military examples of this also. Uh, so, um, anytime you have uh, reflight opportunities, or uh, you know, you have al alternative research opportunities and reflight opportunities, uh, the more possible it is to recover a failed mission, because then you have you have a little bit of uh, of capability of flexibility of your of your spacecraft and your your the various parts of the spacecraft. They uh, they had another movie here. Um, a few years ago, uh, has Sandra Bullock in it. Um, she was, uh, uh, marooned in space. Uh, she leaves her, uh, spacecraft. I think she's in the space station and she makes her way across open space to, um, to a, a Chinese, uh, spacecraft that's passing, uh, within a possible distance of, of, uh, 
of um, of reaching it, and then she is able to come in on the uh, the Chinese craft, which is about to um, begin its entry into it's a it's an automated um, uh, robotic. Um, remote controlled craft that's about to enter re-enter orbit and has a splashdown site. So she tries to hitch a ride on that. I mean, this is, you know, this is very, um, this is very extreme, uh, possibility for an actual NASA mission, but it's an example of turning a failed mission into a successful mission and then making, you know, uh, uh, developing a, in this case, a, a fictional movie out of it. And, and it's based loosely on actual um, space ca- spacecraft parameters and, and existing uh, science and spacecraft. Uh, so all practical measures are taken to achieve the minimum risk uh, to mission success. So you want to reduce all risk uh, as much as possible, but uh, not enough risk reduction to um, to remove the edge off the mission. So you've got to re- you've got to retain enough risk to the mission that the mission is actually going to accomplish something. Otherwise, it doesn't really get anywhere or accomplish anything. It just uh, kind of repeats the same thing over and over again. Um, some there are some. Uh, uh, examples of this uh, in some other countries. Um, so you want to maintain uh, the forward momentum of uh, the the risk edge, and at the same time you want to reduce uh, the risk to life and limb, the reduce reduce the risk to uh, waste and fraud and abuse, and you want to reduce the risk to of or reduce reduce the risk to um, material and uh, equipment and um, hardware. And then the idea is to achieve uh, the highest assurance standards and, uh, and keep those in place. So the highest assurance standards are always the safest. Uh, they're not always 100% safe. Uh, usually they have a better than a 60% chance of safety, but uh, that's considered to be pretty good when you're you know, when you're in a high-risk, um, deadly environment. And uh, space is that. So examples, um, they give uh, the uh, HST example as an example in Cassini, uh, J-I-M-O, J-W-S-T, and uh, the SLS and ISS. So this is the International Space Station, uh, the 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 uh, the moon mission that's about to get started. This is a four part mission that's uh, headed for Mars. Actually, uh, it's going to go to the. It's going to blast off from Earth to the moon. It's going to orbit the moon and do some uh, sort of a dry run for a moon landing. Then it's going to do a second run, a second mission. Uh, this is going to result in a moon landing. Uh, this is, they hope to put the first woman and uh, um, uh, the first person of color on the surface of the moon. Then they're going to uh, use that for their third mission, which is the development of a 
um, settlement, a moon uh, surface settlement. This is very difficult with the temperature changes, uh, temperature and radiation, and uh, the surface of the moon itself is a um, difficult surface to handle. Uh, then from there, they're going to use that as a way station for the Mars mission. So that's the, uh, that's the fourth section. They are going to start uh, making an attempt for the Mars mission. Um, so there would be there would be a slightly closer um, uh, launch point for the mission to Mars, and uh, and there would be the beginning of uh, the first settlement off planet, um, and the difficulties and hardships that that's going to involve that we we know of somewhat, but we haven't really. We haven't really uh, experienced or know firsthand of, and uh, so it's going to be sort of the preliminary um, run up to uh, the first uh, Martian, uh, the first humans on Mars. Hopefully, that's the plan, as they've stated it. So, uh, moving on to a Type B um, description or type of mission. So this type B uh, type of mission, the first type was a human space flight, very large science robotic mission. Type B, or the second type, is a non-human space flight or robotic mission. So this uh, this covers um, the uh, <clears throat> the Mars uh, rovers and uh, like the Cassini mission. Um, these are uh, out of our. Um, they've left Earth orbit. They're past the moon. In Cassini's case, it's even past our solar system, and it uh, it's it's got uh, um, it you know had uh, um, mission priorities to move into orbit around uh, certain planets and take some of the first photographs and some of the first readings and send them back. Uh, it's sort of like a long range recon. Uh, satellite that um, it just picks up information and uh, sends it back that, uh, you know, it's information that we can't really get any other way. We don't have any access. We don't have any direct um, physical access to that information. So Cassini has sort of provided that. Uh, it's moved past our solar system now. It's out past the Cooper Belt and gone out past uh, Pluto and uh, is out into deep space. Um, so the priority of uh, or the priority and acceptable risk level of uh, that type of a mission, a non-human space flight or science robotic mission, it's high priority and low risk. Um, it's uh, it's fairly low risk um, in that it doesn't cost any human life if it fails. Uh, it does cost a lot of um, hardware and software development, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, if you, if you have a Mars Rover that goes to Mars and then doesn't work, uh, it can be used if we ever get to Mars, but it's not really, you know, it doesn't, it, it's, uh, it's a loss of, of, you know, millions of dollars of effort, uh, put into, um, Building and then and also the development of, and the uh, the the concept and design of that uh, that machine that robotic um, 
effort. So it's uh, it's fairly low risk, but it does it's not without risk at all. And uh, most of the risk is uh, you know how well was it designed and and how good are its backup systems and uh, all of these uh, all of these rovers uh, the Mars rovers have done a great job. They really um, are. It's very interesting uh, how well they functioned and their backup systems and and how well um, the uh, the control and command back here the remote. Um, system control it has worked with them and uh and made some really elaborate uh saves um when uh when the hardware and software you know didn't quite come through or or conditions were a little bit more difficult than uh than were expected <clears throat> so the national significance is uh, is high it's not as high as with a human space flight obviously uh, human spaceflight or human mission like the space station. This is uh, has very, very high national significance. Obviously, people identify very closely with and are very interested in uh, people being there and going there and seeing that or, or doing that. Uh, they're a little bit less interested in a robotic mission or a non-human spaceflight, uh, although there is still a lot of interest in it. So it's got a, it's got a high national significance. It still um, it still um, motivates a lot of different areas of our um, of our infrastructure. So education it motivates education, uh, even though it doesn't involve uh, um, astronauts. Um, it it motivates uh, our economy. It motivates jobs and employment. It motivates politics and political uh, campaigns and development. Uh, it motivates uh, the development of sciences and research and development in, in those areas. Uh, it motivates uh, research and analysis uh, from returning materials and, and uh, you know, stuff that uh, um, results that are gathered by or garnered by the use of that uh, um, non-human spaceflight or robotic mission. Uh, it, <clears throat> pardon me, and it uh, it uh, you know it helps um, develop uh, a national um, structure around um, exploration and uh, um, you know going where. Uh, we have seeing things and going to places that uh, haven't been gone to or seen before. Uh, so this helps prompt things like uh, um, deep sea um, research and uh, uh, micro um, uh, organ uh, mi microorganism research, like in the uh, uh, the um, Antarctica and uh, the North Pole area and uh, the Greenland research and so on. All of those are, are assisted by um, and, and sort of motivated by. They help motivate the non-human, uh, motivate and inform the non-human spaceflight or the robotic missions. And the, the non-human spaceflights and robotic missions help inform and uh, motivate those research efforts. So those are all paid efforts. They, they aren't volunteer 
Uh, all those people are paid. They all work for universities. Uh, those universities, uh, you know, they require those uh, researchers who are, are mostly professors uh, with PhDs to, um, you know, to write books and to develop research on that, to uh, expand their research out in the field uh, in Antarctica or uh, deep sea research into um, lab research. And that results in, uh, you know, chemical uh, development and and significant um, uh, uh, results of, um, you know, uh, chemistry and physics and geology and and uh, uh, biological functions and, um, uh, you know, the the. Um, the uh, microscopic world, uh, research into the microscopic world. I mean, these are all things that uh, may or may not be uh, found on exoplanets. Um, you know, the chemistry uh, in various parts of um, Earth may or may not have similarities to the chemistry or the geology on exoplanets. So these both of these sections, these two sciences sort of, uh, they complement each other. The research here on Earth complements the research in, uh, by non-human spaceflight or by robotic missions. And uh, the robotic missions and non-human spaceflight, this all sort of complements the research uh, here on Earth and helps motivate it and, and uh, keep the uh, interest in it and the, uh, the development of it. And that's important for our economy. That uh, that's part of the um, the uh, um, expansion of and uh, development of the innovation and uh, research and development that we rely on to sort of uh, power uh, our economy here in the United States, in Europe, uh, really in most countries. Uh, some countries don't have a a real um, strongly developed uh, economy or they lack some of the infrastructure to have uh, an economy that is as structured as they would like and as, and as, uh, and as um, uh, fluid and um, functional as, as they would like. So, they are, you know, they try to continue to, um, they try to continue to develop their infrastructure to, uh, to improve their economy and, and to, to, uh, add those sciences and so on to help their own space program and vice versa. And they use our space program, the information from our space program, which is, uh, uh, our scientists make available worldwide if uh, if the scientists in that country can uh, can access those um, those documents so this is uh, this brings us back sort of to uh, um, radio Liberty voice of America uh, radio free uh, America radio um, that's one of the things that they kind of do is they get that information out there uh, the uh, social media sort of advanced that a little bit I'm 
getting a little bit short on time here. I've got about four minutes. Um, so the the uh, the national significance of even a non-human spaceflight or a robotic mission is is important. It's high, and the complexity of that is also uh, medium to high. Uh, so the complexity, you know, you've got a um, all of the systems and backup systems on the uh, the robotic mission or on the non-human spaceflight in such a way that uh, if it gets past our uh, capability to reach it, like Cassini is now, we can't reach Cassini. It's it's uh, it's outside of our we we the only way that we could you know be in touch with Cassini is uh, by communication, and uh, and even that's heavily delayed. So it's important to have um, you know complex uh, um, systems to support that, and those are medium to high. Um, and the cost guidance also to a robotic mission or non-human space flight mission is uh, medium to high. Uh, it, it, uh, it's less than it would be for a human space flight or a large robotic mission flight. Uh, but it's still fairly significant. And all of that is investment. That's a type of investment that we make. Uh, we're spending a lot of money, but that money is being spent uh, those are contracts that are be ta being taken by large uh, corporations like Boeing and and uh, some of the other large corporations uh, to develop um, those uh, systems and the uh, the space um, vehicles that uh, and and um, uh, har material hardware the spacesuits that sort of thing all of that stuff has to be developed. And, uh, um, you know, somebody takes a, a government contract for that. So then they hire all those people. So that hires scientists and engineers and uh, um, people involved in, uh, you know, systems designs and, and uh, um, all the different parts of uh, construction uh, that, you would need like HVAC and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, it's a, even though it's a, it's a lot of cost, it's an expenditure that's an investment back into our economy. And that helps, that helps build our infrastructure and, uh, and it develops, um, it develops our workforce. So I'm down to about 55 seconds and uh, I'm going to pick this up on another on a, another segment, um, and that's it. All right, uh, continuing on, uh, picking up where I left off with non-human space flight or science robotic missions. Um, these are high priority, low risk. Uh, for criticality to agency strategic plan and, and uh, the acceptable risk level. Uh, they're high national significance, uh, medium to high, and uh, their complexity is uh, medium to high. Uh, their mission lifetime is uh, it's medium, it's two to five years. Um, obviously, hardware is usually 
Um, it has a very short function time uh, under harsh conditions. Uh, depending on how harsh the conditions are, uh, they can really only expect it to operate about five years. A lot of the um, a lot of the equipment NASA put out has been pretty good, and has uh, has gone on for more than five years. Uh, Cassini's one, um, the uh, the Mars um, rover explorers; those are all those have all done very well. Uh, considering they've gone a lot further uh, time wise than they were kind of expected to. And uh, um, the uh, the telescopes and so on. Uh, there were a couple little flub ups here and there. Uh, the space station. I think the space station's uh, what, like fifteen years old or twenty years old, something like that. So uh, not too bad, considering um, high speed uh, little um, mini meteorites, projectiles, uh, high radiation. Um, human habitation with uh, all its moisture and uh, um, residue, uh, long-term uh, changes and, and significant developments in uh, computer um, systems and uh, um, the uh, hardware and software development. Uh, those things are all you know, they can't be upgraded at a later date for the most part. They kind of have to go with what they put in there originally. So they're not doing too bad. Um, so the, the launch constraints, uh, the mission lifetime is about two to five years, and the cost guidance is uh, high to medium. Uh, these are expensive um, outputs of uh, budgetary uh, priority from Congress, but they, uh, they're also significant uh, investment into um, uh, science and education and um, employment uh, substructure and, and uh, um, the um, infrastructure uh, that all contributes to that. Uh, the launch constraints are medium. Uh, they're a little. They're quite a bit lower for um, the non-human space flight and the uh, robotic missions. Uh, obviously, uh, if there's some kind of a problem, um, they are a little bit more easy to. They're easier to uh, to retrieve. Um, this is prior to leaving orbit, um, and also if anything really significant happens, like uh, the uh, the the space shuttle explosion that uh, killed nine people. Um, you know, the robotic uh, non-human mission, of course it doesn't. Even if the uh, even if the mission's a complete uh, failure and uh, the whole thing blows up in the, you know, on its way out, then um, the uh, the launch constraints are, are fairly low and uh, you know they they don't have to worry quite so much about uh, whether or not um, uh, the launch constraints are met exactly as they do with the uh, the human spaceflight or the uh, the large robotic missions that uh, have a, a lot more um, financial and uh, risk um, investment in them. 
the alternative research opportunities uh, for reflight opportunity and or reflight opportunities. Um, there are, uh, these are few or no reflight opportunities uh, for the robotic missions and the non-human space flight. I, that's not really been shown to be the fact for the most part. Uh, most of those missions have, um, they've extended for quite some time. Uh, some of them have been refurbished. The Hubble telescope's a good example of that. That was a failed one that um, they had launched it, and it was this. It was outside of uh, Earth. It was, you know, uh, to the outside of Earth orbit, so that it could pick up a deep space um, uh, relay and uh, observation. And uh, the, this, the telescope failed. They sent a. Um, uh, an astronaut crew out to repair it, and uh, they successfully repaired the Hubble telescope. So pretty amazing. That's kind of the stuff movies are made out of. It's it's kind of a little bit more even amazing than the uh, the uh, astronaut uh, Bullock hopping on the Chinese space station and coming in to. Um, this is a was an long uh, the longest spacewalk that they'd had thus far. Uh, it, required some very um, specialized um, uh, equipment and uh, very um, uh, careful um, uh, mechanical application to uh, get it um, inserted and fixed and affixed right and then um, and then adjusted and the whole thing tested and then readjusted and so on. So it was a very complicated maneuver um, that uh, it risks some astronauts' lives. Uh, they did a, a really, you know, very uh, amazing job at it. And um, it was a, a successful um, a re restart, or you know what? Not a restart. I don't want to use restart. Uh, a successful um, redeployment of the Hubble telescope mission, which was uh, they were going to have to they were going to have to um, abort it because it you know. They weren't getting any information out of the the, tele, the telescope. Uh, it had a warp to it, from uh, which they repaired with a, a special uh, lens type, I guess, that uh, um, that adjusted for the uh, the error to repair it. Uh, so the achievements of the mission success criteria. Uh, stringent assurance standards uh, with minor compromise in uh, the application to maintain uh, low risk to to mission success. Um, so insisting on uh, um, uh, stringent assurance standards and then not compromising on any of it uh, as they go along. Uh, to maintain low risk to the mission success is uh, that's the goal. Um, there's uh, 
you know, there's always minor compromises that have to be made. And sometimes those minor compromises are not so minor. Um, there have been a couple of those on the International Space Station uh, and a couple with the Space Shuttle. Um, but those all have uh, resulted in a long-term mission that's that's been fairly successful. And it has maintained a, a relatively low risk to, to the mission success. And for like the International Space Station, uh, you know, there was multiple missions that went that go up to that. So that is responsible for the success of, uh, you know, a number of tiny missions across a number of years. Uh, every time, um, every time there's a, um, a trip to the space station, they're taking payload specialists who have, um, you know, who have an experiment or some kind of, uh, some kind of project that they're putting into effect there to see how it works out, growing crystals in a weightless environment, uh, growing radishes, growing peppers, uh, you know, um, can, can um, microorganisms survive in uh, the space station atmosphere, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, there was a TV show, The Big Bang Theory. They had quite a few references. One of their, uh, one of their um, scientists, it was a group of scientists who were friends, at uh, Calber or Caltech, I guess. Um, they, uh, one of them was uh, an engineer and uh, he was recruited by the, um, the uh, space station NASA science program. And he, in fact, did one of the, uh, the waste disposal systems that they had. So it gave an example of that in effect with some comedy. Um, so examples of uh, those missions, those types of missions that uh, did all of that, they, they achieved all of that, uh, were the MER mission, the MRO mission, uh, the Discovery payloads, the uh, International Space Station uh, facility class payloads, and the attached uh, International Space Station payloads. So those are some foreign um, international uh, payloads and the... Uh, um, those that are uh, non-biologic or non-biological uh, payloads. So, uh, you know, anything having to do with um, non-human or robotic uh, payload development, payload experiments, uh, were in that category. Uh, the next type of... Um, uh, mission or project I would be a mission. The next type of mission uh, example is a small science or robotic missions. Um, these are medium priority for criticality agency strategic plan and their medium risk and uh, in the acceptable risk level. Uh, their national significance is medium, low to medium. Um, their complexity is uh, low to medium, and uh, their mission lifetime is expected to be less than two years. Uh, some of those have gone on to a number of years. Uh, a good example was the uh, the first satellite that went up. Um, the, uh, the first satellite was, uh, it was in orbit for, uh, it was like 25, 30 years. It did quite well, and it 
continued to produce uh, results that it had been requested to produce as part of its uh, its um, mission in orbit, um, you know, comprehensively across all of those years and uh, and very reliably. So uh, that's just a there's that was a very tiny, um, you know, uh, science mission that uh, was very successful. It didn't cost a lot. Um, and, uh, and it had greater than two years by quite a bit. So the cost guidance is, uh, low to medium. Uh, this is mostly tech development and, uh, you know, this, uh, this seems low to medium, but, um, this is a lot of technical, uh, research and development and, um, work, uh, employment, uh, job employment that, uh, or job production and employment, um, uh, capability that, uh, is all in the tech fields. So, um, robotics, uh, small mechanics, um, uh, you know, solar, uh, some wind type stuff, um, of course, the computer and uh, related systems and hardware, software development, uh, computer chips, um, all that sort of thing that, that contribute to a successful functioning piece of machinery that, that uh, can undertake a small science or a robotic mission. So small science also can cover um, things like uh, the Pepper um, mission. Uh, this was to take... A, uh, peppers to the International Space Station and see if they grew there, and they did. Uh, they produced uh, a small-sized and uh, edible pepper, um, and there's some other examples of that. Uh, there's a there's a whole website that goes over that. So if you wanted to look it up, there's a bunch of different little tiny science experiments. Some of them are suggested by school children. Some of them are. Um, research uh, projects like sort of a thesis style research project for for masters and uh, and doctorate degrees and um, all of those are important uh, contribution to uh, the general large human space flight or uh, large science robotic missions uh, you know if you're a if you're an astronaut on Mars eating peppers at some point, that's going to be important research. Um, alternative research opportunities or reflight opportunities. There's some or few alternative reflight opportunities. Uh, these are mostly um, single launch robotic missions. They they expect to go out and stay out until they until they come apart and not really uh, be reused. Um, and the, the satellite's a good example of that. It continued in its orbit for a number of years and then uh, re-entered orbit and burned up in orbit and, uh, and um, had a mini crash site in the ocean. Uh, the, um, you know, obviously the small science uh, experiments, those, those are uh, one-time things. They have results and... Uh, and those results uh, come back and are analyzed and 
and go into some other form of research or research and development. And they, the whole concept of it, it isn't really used again in another um, mission payload. Uh, so the achievement of the mission success criteria is a medium risk of not achieving the mission. Uh, the success may be acceptable um, if there's some medium risk. Uh, the reduced assurance standards are permitted. So since there's no humans, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's testing peppers or it's testing microorganisms or it's testing uh, whether or not crystals grow in a weightless environment. This is not high importance uh, for high risk. Uh, it's low importance and it's very low risk. It doesn't uh, endanger anybody's life. It's not really an endangering. It's not really endangering the space station or any of the uh, transport craft uh, moving between the space station and um, the launch pad. So it is considered to just be um, a successful mini mission that uh, contributes a very small part to the larger mission, and uh, it has a medium risk. And if that risk is um, become, you know, if it, if it fails, if the risk level is so high that it fails, it's not too much of a loss. It's a little bit of an investment that, um, is not too much of a, of a budgetary loss. So examples of that would be ESSP, uh, the Explorer payloads, uh, the Mighties and, uh, International Space Station, uh, the complex subrack payloads, uh, PA-1, Ares, 1X, Medley, uh, the Clarillo, Sage-3, and Calypso. Most of these are uh, small-type um, research robotic missions. Uh, their main mission is to go into orbit or out of orbit and into another orbit or passing through multiple orbits across um across the uh, planetary system, uh, our planetary system for our sun, uh, and or continuing on out into deep space. Uh, some of them are um, like uh, um, uh, telescope collection sites. Uh, they all, they just sort of, um, they sit and work until they don't work anymore. And... Uh, so these are all really interesting projects. You can look them up. Uh, the Clareo is C-L-A-R-R-E-O, uh, Sage 3, and Calypso. Uh, those especially, the Aries 1-X, one, uh, one that's, that's these are all interesting ones. Um, the complex subracket ISS. Uh, if you have any interest in uh, non-human systems and uh, that sort of um, you know, computers and robotics, uh, it's pretty interesting stuff to look into. Uh, the next type of mission is a smaller science or technology mission, the ISS payloads. Uh, these are low priority and high risk. Um, the risk is that uh, the the um, the science experiment um, it has to it has to get there successfully be started and completed and then returned successfully. Uh, so sometimes, you know, like if you have, uh, you're growing peppers and then, then you're transferring the peppers back to, from the space station back to 
to uh, to Earth. They didn't do this. They actually just left it there. But if you were doing this, and uh, the peppers die en route, you know, they uh, there's some kind of a uh, temperature problem, and they, um, you know, they freeze. This this ruins the science experiment. So the the high risk is to, um, you know, complete the uh, science experiment successfully, and then also successfully return the information to those persons who are collecting the information, uh, which is not necessarily NASA themselves. Um, and uh, the technology missions, um, like the space, the space station arm, and um, they've had to do a bunch of repairs on that. So that's a, that's got a high risk uh, to maintain it. The uh, the space station uh, arm is um, they've had to go out there several times and uh, do some pretty intricate repairs on it. Uh, it's uh, it's technically a low priority. It's not uh, human life involved uh, per se of itself, but it does require that the astronauts maintain it, and uh, that can keep it at high risk. So the national significance is fairly low, uh, I, you know, low to medium. Um, those all contribute uh, somewhat to to the national significance of the mission. Um, you know the school children uh, observed those peppers growing across a period of time. Uh, the crystals in um, the weightless environment, uh, that was a school children's uh, project. And they, uh, you know, they kept track of it and learned how to uh, write up a science report and, and do uh, investigative um, questioning and so on. They had a bunch of uh, lesson plans built around it. Um, some of the computer and um, the robot, the, the small robotic missions ground, um, they all, uh, the, the technology missions, they all, um, they all had, uh, you know, they have uh, master's degree students, uh, graduate students or doctorate students, um, you know, uh, participating in those, uh, they contribute to uh, the development of science research in the journals and publications, and so on and so on and so forth. So they do have some significance in, uh, in the national sphere, and uh, those all, of course, you know, those journals, they're not inexpensive. And uh, you have to um, purchase access to uh, do your research out of them most of the time. Um, and that, you know, there's publishing companies and, and people have built their, uh, their, their um, tenure as professors uh, from that kind of research. So it's not uh, completely insignificant to the, the national um, infrastructure and development. Uh, the complexity is uh, medium to low. Uh, the mission lifetime is short. It's usually less than two years. Um, <clears throat> the cost uh, estimates and guidelines for it are low. Um, the launch constraints are few to none. 
and the alternative research opportunities, reflight opportunities. These are mostly uh, one-shot missions that uh, they go out and don't necessarily come back. Uh, or if they do come back, it's um, it's pretty simple. Uh, the um, the uh, significant um, alternative or reflight opportunities are pretty low. Uh, they they basically just go once and that's it. Uh, the achievement of the mission success criteria, a medium or significant risk of not achieving the mission success uh, is allowed. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have humans involved. It doesn't have uh, a lot of real high uh, priority, critical to agency, strategic plan research going on. It's a small research that uh, is important, but not not mission critical for some of the larger missions. Uh, there's minimal assurance that uh, the standards are are uh, minimal assurance standards are permitted. So uh, it's not it's not um, it's not such a, a worrying failure or a possibility of failure as it as it gets underway. Uh, examples of that are Spartan and uh, GAS can gas can technology uh, demonstrators uh, the simple um, ISS uh, the International Space Station when it was in its simpler form uh, the express mid deck and sub rack uh, payloads, uh, the SMEX and the MISA-X, MISA-X, M-I-S-S-E, I think it was MISI-X, and the EV-2. Uh, these are all pretty new. Um, they're pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, they they are based on some other older uh, research efforts. Um, they kind of expand on that, and they're updated to the, to the newer... Um, uh, technology, and you can take a look at them online. Uh, the next type is a suborbital or aircraft or large ground-based missions. So some examples of these are the uh, Blue Origin right now. Uh, they had one here a while ago. Uh, it was a it was a hot air balloon that was going to go uh, right to the edge of space. It was basically going to be right along the uh, the uh, the dark edge of space where the uh, the blue atmosphere merges with the dark uh, edge of space. Um, so that was uh, that had people in it, I think, if I recall right. And they did also some uh, atmospheric uh, research. Uh, there is the um, the uh, little uh, mini. Um, uh, space shuttle. Uh, this is a research uh, shuttle that uh, is being uh, put up most often by the CIA, I think, but I think there's some other or, uh, organizations and agencies that are also in on it. Uh, that's suborbital and just orbital. Um, then there's ground, large ground-based missions. Uh, these are all low priority and high risk for criticality to agency strategic plan. 
and they're within acceptable risk level at uh, high risk. Um, they uh, they have low national significance in most cases. Uh, they have low complexity of development. They're basically um, uh, aircraft, sort of uh, aircraft related. Um, their mission lifetime uh, is non-specific. Uh, it's not really applicable. They go up and and come back down like a like a plane would or or a flight would. Um, their cost guidance is uh, inexpensive uh, by comparison to the uh, the large robotic missions and the uh, non-human um, and robotic missions. Uh, their launch constraints are few to none. They basically they take off like a plane and land like a plane uh, or like a balloon. Uh, their alternative research opportunities or reflight opportunities are significant. They they basically are built for reflight opportunities and uh, and a significant um, alternative research opportunities. So I gave an example of that with the little mini space shuttle. Uh, there was one here that they used uh, recently. Uh, it's it's being used by NOAA, I think, and it's uh, they have it doing a bunch of um, a bunch of uh, atmospheric and also environmental research. And every time there's a hurricane, they uh, they fly it into the middle of a hurricane and uh, and typhoons and take a look at the inside of it and collect information about uh, wind speeds and and various uh, specifics that are occurring inside the uh, the hurricane as it's underway. So that wasn't really possible before. Those are um, they all expect to refly those, and they have a significant uh, reuse opportunity. Uh, and the achievement of mission success criteria is uh, medium or significant risk of not achieving mission success is permitted. Um, if they don't achieve it the first time or the second time, there might be five or ten times possible to, you know, you might, uh, you would, um, you would make an appointment on a on a schedule and uh, and do your research or your experiment um, and you might get a few times to try it instead of just once uh, and there's minimal assurance standards uh, the minimal assurance standards are permitted so there's not a lot of uh, red tape um, so some examples of those IRVE2 that's IRVE2 3 the high fire, the high bolt, HYBOLT, uh, the all hat, uh, the storm, and the Earth Venture one. I don't know all of these, but um, a couple of them I do, and uh, they're all pretty interesting. Also, uh, they're mostly um, they're mostly kind of uh, low orbital and atmospheric research type stuff. Um, so that's a kind of different area of interest. Uh, if you have any interest in weather, uh, if you like uh, those um, uh, storm chaser shows, uh, that's the kind of stuff that they're also interested in. And um, part of their research is uh, weather and atmospheric uh, research. This is important when you go to a planet like uh, Mars or the moon. The moon isn't a planet, but if you go there, there's no atmosphere. 
So knowing what an atmosphere is, and uh, there's some at some planets like uh, Venus and Neptune. These both have very extreme atmospheres that are deadly to humans. So understanding how our atmosphere uh, supports life on Earth is important for understanding how um, how to survive an atmosphere on another planet or a lack of atmosphere. And if you are uh, if you're thinking about writing science fiction. It's kind of interesting to uh, look at this. You kind of have to have some idea of, uh, you know, what what an alien atmosphere might include and uh, how likely it is that that alien atmosphere would be inimical to human life or to um, Earth life uh, or supportive of it. And uh, these all these missions kind of contribute information to that type of thing. Uh, another type of mission is aircraft or ground-based technology demonstrations. Um, the priority and criticality of the agency's strategic plan for this is low to very low uh, priority. They have a high risk. Um, uh, they're in the high risk category. Their national significance is very low. Uh, their complexity is uh, low to very low. And... Uh, their mission lifetime is uh, not specific. They are expected to kind of be used over and over again. They're not, you know, it's it's usually uh, fairly extensive or just a one-shot thing. Uh, the cost guidance is uh, very low, and the launch constraints um, not applicable. It basically takes off at an airport. Uh, the alternative research opportunities or reflight opportunities are significant. And uh, the achievement of a, a mission success criteria. Uh, there's significant risk of not achieving the mission success, and that's permitted. Uh, there's a minimal assurance. Minimal assurance standards are permitted, so there's not a lot. Of, again, not a lot of red tape. So some examples of this are Dawn Air and In Flame uh, research technology and uh, and demonstrations technology demonstrations uh, at airfields and so on. So, um, you know, the stealth bombers and uh, um, some of the stealth uh, recon surveillance aircraft, sometimes you see these at, uh, at air shows. These are all aircraft or ground-based technology demonstrations. Uh, there's been some laser research uh, via aircraft. You can see that sometimes and so on. So uh, you can kind of look that up. There's a couple different websites that have it. You know, you just look up uh, ground-based technology and uh, with NASA, and it'll give you a list of stuff. Um, so the... Uh, The next area of um, of work that would be done um, on a mission would be uh, this: a bunch of different um, technical uh, production that would go into a um, into a um, 
a a mission. Sorry about all the ums there. I'm trying to find the section here that I want to start on. So the uh, the project uh, the starting with concept documentation. So uh, concept is um, developing the idea of what the uh, final product is going to have and be about. So what is the, uh, if you're doing concept development in a video game, um, you know, you might, um, you might, uh, you might have a small team or a squad. You might have, uh, the possibility of a of an individual, uh, you know, these for just shooter games, um, video games, you would have uh, one shooter with uh, multiple levels of uh, advancing through a mission completion, and um, the different types of weaponry that you would need to complete that mission. So that's a concept for a video game. Uh, and you would use the same type of thing, the same idea, the con a concept of what exactly uh, your mission uh, is going gonna, is gonna to accomplish and what it's going to encompass. So, uh, you know, a mission to Mars, eventually this is going to encompass... Um, living on, you know, people in some sort of a settlement on Mars. And so all of that between the settlement on Mars, which has nothing on it now and is not, it's, uh, it's not uh, habitable uh, without a lot of um, uh, supporting systems um, and life support systems. Uh, so you need a you have that as your basic concept and then you're, you're building your launch from Cape Canaveral to, um, uh, to Mars. And then, uh, how do you get your, your, um, your, Mars settlers down onto the planet and how do you get your your uh, biosphere or uh, living structures your camp that they're going to live in how do you get that developed so it's the same thing with a, a NASA um mission they have a concept uh the idea is they want to have a the lights the there's the um population on earth has produced so much uh technology and that has resulted in um cities and those cities produce light there's now too much light to do deep space um observation with telescopes 
is there a possibility of taking a telescope off of Earth, putting it on the moon? There's, this is one of the things they're going to work on. Uh, or putting it into orbit so that it's outside of the light and um, uh, ambient light production that is a, a problem for deep space uh, telescopic ob observation. So um, that uh, that concept resulted in the Hubble, the Hubble telescope and, and several other telescopes since. Or uh, <clears throat> we see that there are, we notice that there are radio uh, waves being uh, radio emissions being released from deep space um, um, locations. Can we construct some kind of a um, multiple dish reception for incoming radio waves so that we can extend this? This has resulted in a very large array. Uh, which is a you know gigantic field of gigantic uh, radio um, reception dishes. So this is a, the idea of a, this is a concept, the basic idea of trying to put together um, some kind of a an idea for something that's going to work. Uh, that's just sort of on paper and. Uh, you might have a three-dimensional model of it at one point. And then you move on to the second section. This is uh, the mission, uh, spacecraft, ground, and payload architectures. And um, this is kind of what I was talking about uh, with, the, um, with the Mars mission. So I gave, uh, I'm, I keep giving the example of Mars. This is the only one that we really have in our actual mission planning right now for, that NASA really has. A mission plan with but um, there are others uh, there are other planets uh, the most of these are kind of from science fiction but uh, uh, there's a recent water planet uh, there's a um, there's a diamond planet Kepler 69c there's Ke the, all the Kepler planets Kepler 438b there's Tau Ceti e these are considered potentially habitable. These are based on um, uh, KOI 168601, a potentially habitable exoplanet. Um, these were all uh, noted by once uh, Hubble telescope was out, and now there's the, uh, the new telescope. Um, Hubble was decommissioned, and they've got a new one up. Uh, they were able to look at these a little bit closer, and these uh, there's a kind of a sizable list of, um, of planets that they think might be uh, possibly uh, habitable, at least uh, worth a closer look at. So the, um, the list is a Teagarten star B, of course, the Earth and our sun. Uh, the, all the rest of these are uh, outside of our solar system, so they, uh, they're not reliant on our sun. Uh, Teagarten star B, uh, TOI 700D, K27, K272E, um, Trappist 1D, 
uh, Kepler. There's about, uh, I don't know what, five or six Keplers. Uh, 1649C. Um, 62F. Uh, 1229B. 452B, 62E, 1652B, 1544B. Of course, they're all under uh, your star Kepler. Uh, they're all, they're all in the same the same star group. Um, so there's the Trappist uh, 1D, Proxima Centauri B, uh, Gliese 1061D and 1061C. Uh, Ross 128B, Luton B, uh, Wolf 1061C, and uh, that's all the ones that I recognize on here. I uh, there was recently um, there was a diamond planet. Uh, this is a planet made of diamond. Um, a water planet. They just found the a water planet and a a second possible habitable uh, out, I think, at Gliese, Gliese and um, a couple of others, supposedly. These are, uh, this is based on um, uh, spectral, spectrum analysis and spect, uh, spectro, spectrography, <laughs> studying the light spectrum from the uh, planet, the the spectrum emission that the planet puts out, which indicates uh, whether or not it has an atmosphere, whether or not it has water, whether or not it has uh, certain chemicals that we're reliant on for uh, atmosphere. So um, Mars isn't the only possibility, but it's the closest one and has been sort of a long-term goal uh, to go to. So the um, the mission, of course, this is the uh, this is the plan to go, and uh, how to get there, um, basically without any specific details. Uh, we're going to launch it with a rocket. Uh, then the spaceship is going to detach from the rocket, and it's going to it's going to um, further rocket launch direct it towards uh, whatever the planet is, we'll say Mars, and then it's going to continue on its journey to Mars, which is some distance. Uh, once it reaches Mars, it's going to go into the uh, um, orbit around Mars. Uh, then it's going to launch a small a landing craft with a landing rocket, and then, uh, then we're going to have people get out of the rocket onto Mars. So this is a basic mission idea based on the concept of uh, send people to Mars to um, set up a small uh, pioneering um, live on Mars station. Uh, so then you have a spacecraft. I mentioned that. So we have a, a rocket. Uh, we have a basic spacecraft in some way attached or um, propelled by the rocket. Then we have the spacecraft after the initial uh, rocket stage is dropped off is one that that pushes it out of uh, Earth's orbit, um, and it out of uh, Earth into Earth's orbit, and then the second rocket launch stage, which pushes it out of Earth's orbit. Then there's a its navigational rocket 
uh, launches and and then it uh, it arrives at Mars uh, intact with its human crew in- intact. It goes into orbit around the planet. Um, presumably, it will be leaving the planet and bringing its uh, its human uh, cargo back at some point. So it's got to be able to exit the um, the gravity uh, the orbit of Mars and return to uh, Earth's orbit, and then it's going to enter Earth's orbit and splash down with uh, everybody that it's uh, left with, or most of the people that it left with. Um, so then you have ground and payload architectures. So the ground architectures is everything that goes into launching that rocket off the uh, launch pad. And uh, the payload architecture is everything in there that's going to go to Mars that's going to be taken out of the uh, spacecraft onto the landing craft, onto the surface of Mars, and used to construct uh, a pioneering um, uh, site on Mars for, um, you know, scientific uh, research and and, uh, experimental uh, long-term living on the surface of Mars. So that would be the basic um, product that uh, they're attempting to come up with. Is that is that mission? Com- that's a complete mission. Then it's gonna have to have the possibility of of returning people back to Earth. So that's the final conclusory step to the to the full mission. Uh, the next. Uh, product would be um, a project level system and subsystem requirements. So what systems are going to be needed for that mission to be completed? Uh, so that includes ground architecture, payload architecture, spacecraft, and then and then uh, all of the system and subsystem requirements for life on uh, in a, um, an ecosystem, you know, a, a habitable um, life support system on the surface of Mars and also uh, spacesuits for use on Mars, spacesuits for use on the, on the, uh, on the ship between Earth and Mars and all of the related systems and subsystems of, uh, you know, vehicles to drive, um, you know, four wheelers, uh, whatever sorts of um, survival equipment that you would need for your uh, habitable site on Mars. All of that has to be um, project planned. Um, Then the design documentation. So then you come up with basically like architectural plans and engineering plans and uh, project documentation with the steps laid out and uh, your flowcharts that uh, indicate uh, how you're going to go about completing your further development of your mission plan and also how you're going to complete each of these uh, projects that you set up to do. So you've got like, you know, a hundred projects there at least that you have to work on. Some of them are already partially completed. 
with pre with prior missions. Some of them uh, can build off of prior missions, and uh, basically all the research and development is done. It just has to be built, and so on. So the design documentation is developed. Uh, then you have the operations concept. So the operations concept is, um, you know, you have the uh, you have the ground operations and the launch operations. So the concept there is to get the thing, get the the ship and the rockets out of Earth orbit successfully. Then you have uh, the mission um, operation uh, and command operations between Earth and Mars. So this is a very long trip that's uh, even at the fastest speed is going to take uh, many years to complete. So there's all kinds of discussion about how they're going to do that. Are they going to, are people going to be in sleep stasis? Are, you know, are they going to send a super young crew and they're going to arrive old? Uh, are they going to come up with some kind of alternative um, uh, um, propulsion system that uh, speeds it up and uh, doesn't kill everybody? You know, what are they going to do? There's some, you know, discussion about that. Um, so that's uh, the operations concept is, What's going to happen in those years, those intervening years between leaving Earth's orbit and arriving at Mars's orbit? And that, uh, you know, you want to you want to have operations in there that um, that prepare for the mission on Mars, uh, that help complete some missions uh, that are relevant to Mars, but aren't necessarily going to be on the surface of Mars, uh, you know, um, things like star charts and that kind of thing. Um, and then once you get, once the ship gets to Mars and it goes into orbit around Mars, uh, what is the operations concept for, for touching down on Mars and then uh, setting up a, uh, a livable um, uh, habitation site on Mars? What is that going to involve? What kind of structures, uh, what kind of uh, machines, what kind of technology, what kind of um, leadership structure, uh, you know, what kind of uh, lifestyle and uh, habitation expectation is there going to be? All of that is got to be, you know, what kind of what are they going to do day to day and what are their operations um, requirements and parameters going to be? So that all has to be developed for each stage of mission, spacecraft, ground and payload uh, delivery. And then um, also for uh, systems and subsystem requirements and all of that has to be shown on design documentation. Uh, then, the next step would be technology readiness assessment documentation. So um, this involves, they've just done this here recently, uh, testing the booster rockets. Are the booster rockets going to, are they going to light off? Are they going to light off correctly? Is, is, the, uh, is the fuel going to be uh, adequate? Is it going to be the right type? Is it going to be the right amount? Uh, is it full enough? Is it cooling right? Is it... Uh, does it have the right uh, configuration, um, you know, rocket configuration? Does it have the right, does the, uh, the control 
uh, internal control mechanism have the right configuration for uh, dropping each of, each of the booster rockets in order so that uh, we don't have an accident uh, in the upper orbit and so on. Um, so each of those has to be tested. They're tested a bunch of times. Uh, just here the other day, uh, one of the uh, SpaceX rockets, uh, they were testing their, <clears throat> they were testing their, um, their propulsion system, uh, their rocket launch system. And, uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't cool right, I think. And, uh, they had a big explosion. Nothing, no damage was done, but they had to completely reassess their uh, rocket launch and then and then re uh, redo the whole thing, set the whole thing up again, and uh, make the repairs and get it ready to go again before the next um, the next testing stage. And then they tested the next one, and they did have a successful launch, uh, and it went through its full. Um, stage uh dropping stage one to stage two and so on it had a successful completion so each of those uh operations concepts has to be um developed and then the technology readiness assessment documentation has to be completed so all the testing uh to make sure that that's gonna successfully make it through each of the stages to uh, completion of mission and then the human systems integration plan. So this is uh, really elaborate. Obviously, this is very complicated to keep humans alive in space. Space is not friendly to humans. There is no air. There is no oxygen. There is no atmosphere. There is no gravity. There is no heat. There is no sunlight. Uh, you know, there's not any ventilation. The ventilation all has to be uh, enclosed. Uh, there's no waste um there's no way to uh, get rid of waste. It if if it if it's there, it's uh, it's there with the astronauts. Um, it's not uh, conducive to good health, really. Uh, we consider good health to be vitamins and minerals, uh, good you know good food that's been uh, grown and raised here on Earth, and uh, clean water. And um, uh, impact uh, to maintain muscles and bones. I'm down to about uh, 37, 5, 35 seconds. So I'm going to pick this up on the next um, installation. And uh, that's it. Next segment.